science. This is Love and Science, and uh, I'm Andrew Glester. It's wonderful to have your company. As I said, unfortunately, Malcolm Love is not with me today, which is a terrible shame, but not the end of the world, because with me is Harriet Croom. Hello, Harriet. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm all right, <laughs> thank you. I, I, you know, I always feel a bit better once the first song is out of the way, and uh, we, we can just get on with chatting about science. We've got some really good, uh, well, there's some positive science news stories going on at the moment, which is, uh, so, you know, this, the, the news in the world at the moment is, is it never really lifts me up when I look at the n- main bit of the news so I'd like to come to the science news for a bit more uplifting stuff there are some stories we're going to cover which aren't quite so uplifting but do stick with us for the, for the hour because it's got some great stuff including a man who's sending two robots to the moon next year to set up a mobile network <laughs> yeah. indeed <laughs> what it, genuinely that's coming later uh, but Harriet what have you been up to recently Oh, in the last week or so, I've just been working on some assignments for my Masters in Science Communication, set by uh, your usual presenter, (laughs) (laughs) Malcolm. He set us some tricky assignments, so they've been taking up most of my time. What have you been doing? Making films, making radio shows, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely been making a film. We made a nice little film um, in Bristol, actually, about the River Avon, a a source to see. trip down the Avon um, and we did some work with the Bristol Avon at Rivers Trust to show the work they're doing building new habitats along the river. So there are new habitats being built now for wildlife and things aren't there? So what they're doing is um, they're felling trees into the river actually to try and change the flow of the rivers and build kind of new vegetated spaces along the bank sides so that's really good for spawning fish and okay and yeah. So I, I go down to the river quite a lot here. It's one of I'm sure everybody listening to this here in Bristol does. It's just it's a wonderful part of the city, and I'm always fascinated by that. How different the city looks when it's just completely the tide is in and mm. the tide is out, and you, you have this incredibly beautiful reflected city on the on the river when the tide is out, and then this sludge, which has got its own kind of beauty in a way. Did you do anything to do with the sludge? In yeah, yeah, yeah. So we. Um we took the story right from the source of the Avon, which is up in, in Acton Turville in South Gloucestershire, and then went all the way out to the estuary um, and looked at the sludge and how important and amazing the sludge is for all the animals that live there and rely on it. Um, so, yeah, the sludge formed a very important part of the video, actually. Yeah. Another thing that happened in uh, Bristol this week is the Science March, which we'll come to in a moment. But um, Chris Packham... Uh, a name that many of us will know has been in the news recently because he, uh, well, perhaps Harriet can tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so Chris Packham was in the news this last week uh, after he was charged for assault whilst campaigning against the spring bird hunting season in Malta. Now, the Maltese spring bird hunting season takes place each year in April and lasts for around two weeks, and it's a tradition that dates back for generations and involves shooting birds for sport as they make their annual migration over Malta to reach breeding grounds further north. The hunters also trap smaller birds in cages to listen to their song, and it was when confronting some of these individuals that Packham suspected being involved in this strictly illegal act that 
Maltese police stepped in and arrested him and his crew. Yeah, and I, I met up with Chris Packham at the March for Science, which happened uh, on Saturday here in Bristol. And I started by asking him why he was here in Bristol for that march. I've come to support the Bristol Science March because, like everyone else who uh, is showing up today, I, I think we should stand up for science. I'm, I'm very worried that we're living in uh, a time where science is being ignored when it comes to making decisions. I'd like the decisions that shape our world to be evidence-based, not politically based. And as a consequence of that, I think we've got to stand up and show support for all of our scientists who get up every morning and, and devote all of their time and energies to uncovering the truth. And I'm interested in the truth when it comes to shaping life. I'm not interested in lies or corruption or anything else so yeah i'm very keen to be here to support our scientists well we were worried about funding in science obviously with brexit coming up there's going to be a lot of changes and one thing's for sure at the moment we get a lot of funding for blue sky science from the eu and uh, I i'm worried about like i like knowing things for the sake of knowing things i have to say equally i like knowing things so they can inform us how we should make progress and, and that's what it's about. And we're desperately in need of progress at the moment because a lot of things are going wrong in the world. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of worries globally uh, in terms of Europe and, of course, uh, nationally in our, in our own country. We have uh, politicians who say that they've had enough of experts. And that's not what I want to hear from our decision makers. I want them to listen to experts. You know, I, I spend all my time listening to experts. I, you know, people say to me, oh, you know about wildlife. Oh, yeah, I know a little bit, but I like to work with people who know more so that I can learn from them and then and then better understand the things that I'm interested in and that's that's the similar approach we need from our politicians you know Clint Eastwood offered a fantastic bit of philosophical advice once he said a man or a woman has got to know their limitations if you don't know about something ask someone who does and then shape your decisions amazing now, we've, we've seen you in the news recently because you're just back literally just back from Malta um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm campaigning, uh, campaigning out in Malta with my colleagues there independently to draw attention to the fact that Malta transgresses the European Habitats Directive and the Birds Directive in that they're not upholding the laws which we put in place to protect birds across Europe. Um, they're continuing to shoot and trap them. And uh, we're not at all happy about that. So we went out there to shine a light on these illegalities and draw them to public attention. And uh, thankfully this week we've managed to, to achieve that. Okay. But um, didn't you have some trouble with the law while we were over there? Well, we had some trouble with the law of sorts, yeah. Um, in the sense that we ended up in court, I ended up in court, when the trappers that we were observing, who were likely committing Ill Ill illegal acts, um, managed to get away with it. Um, and this really, again, serves to highlight the very difficult working conditions that conservationists face in countries like Malta and Cyprus, where we're also campaigning. And we worked there with BirdLife Malta and the Committee Against Bird Slaughter. And what we endured this week is something they endure 52 weeks of the year. And so I hope that through what we've exposed, people will find a greater sympathy and an urgency to support these very brave conservationists who are at the forefront of a very difficult struggle. So, you know, in a way, um, it was very positive what, what happened this week. It, it did give us that ability to, 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 to highlight this issue. And, and I hope that BirdLife get more members and, and cabs get more volunteers going out to address the issue. Amazing. Thank you very much for talking. No, no, you're most welcome. Thank you very much. That's uh, Chris Packham talking at the science uh, March for Science on Saturday, and it's a, it's a fascinating issue, isn't it? And it's but it's not really one that's in the news very much. So as Chris says, it's 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 a good thing in a way that he got uh, got into trouble in that way, but not very much fun for him. Harriet, what 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 are they actually doing to these birds, these people? So. Uh, basically what happens is as the birds are migrating northwards they come over the Sahara Desert and then the first 
bit of land that they they reach after that is Malta um, and as they fly over Malta there are literally 10,000 hunters waiting there with guns to, to shoot them out of the sky um, and the, the birds that they are uh, validated to hunt are European turtle doves and quails um, and in fact this year there was a moratorium on the on the turtle, love, turtle doves but up until that point they've been allowed to take 5,000 of each species of bird the the turtle doves and the quails which is just enormous amount um and it's particularly controversial around the turtle doves because um they their populations are declining all over europe and in fact since the turn of the century they've declined by 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 a long long way and in in britain particularly they're the fastest declining bird that we have in the UK, over 90% since 1995. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I assume it's a kind of cultural tradition, is it, that there's, that's behind this? Or what, what is the motivation? Yeah, it is. It go, goes back for generations, actually. I wasn't able to find a, a precise starting ba- date, but there are, there are accounts of people having done this for at least the last century and, and their sort of fathers and forefathers before that as well. Mm. Um, and it, it is strictly for sport. Some, some are, are eaten, um, but lots of them just, just get shot and left on the ground. Um, and that raises another problem because some of them are not shot and killed. Um, in fact, worse, they're just, just shot and wounded mm. um, and die from other causes, which obviously isn't very nice. No, absolutely. What, what are the, what's the kind of legality of it there and around? So... There, the well, this year anyway, the shooting of of quail up to a quota of five thousand in the two weeks is is legalised, um, and they're the only country within the EU that has this kind of um, opt out from the general EU wide directive banning bird spring bird hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they are able to do that. But what's meant to happen is for each bird killed, they report it to the government, um, but. I mean, as you you'll, you can see quite clearly, 5,000 birds, 10,000 hunters. Yeah. The mass doesn't quite add up. Add no, up. Is no. everyone reporting their bird killings? The, the, the charities out there suspect not. No, absolutely not. We are, we are uh, in the middle of a, an election campaign at the moment, so we always have to be balanced. Has the Maltese government had to say anything about this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, they, they acknowledge the declining populations, absolutely. Um, but... Uh, they they see the the reason for this is coming from more of um, agricultural uh, problems outside of Malta itself. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, pesticides and and disease, which hasn't been researched into enough yet. Okay. Um, so that's their 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 stance on it. Okay. Well, they have a stance on it. Um, I have one. It's just my personal stance, which is that if anything uh, needs to be a tradition to keep going, then it should just stop. Surely if it was good enough in its own right, it wouldn't need to become a tradition. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM, that's 93.2. And we are talking about uh, the science in the news. And there's a new planet, well it's not a new planet, it's five million years old, but there's a newly discovered planet called, um, oh, it's got one of those snappy titles. It's... uh, a series of numbers. Harriet, can you help me out? It is LHS 1140B, right. I believe. That's, that's <laughs> Catchy. it. Catchy. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 
a wonderful title. Uh, what the most interesting thing about it is that it has well, there's lots of interesting things about it. It's 39 light years away from Earth, which in galactic terms is fairly close. It's 1.4 times the size of Earth, but it's got a mass which is seven times greater, which means it's dense rock. Really, is what that means. And because it's been seen edge on. Uh, sort of, if you see what I mean. If, if a planet can be seen edge on, as it as it uh, transited in front of, of of its star, we've seen that it has an atmosphere. And obviously, if you want to have life on a planet, it's much more likely if it's got an atmosphere. And it's being hailed as the best chance of finding alien life that we have so far. Which is pretty exciting. Would you, would you, are you excited about the prospect of finding alien life? Oh, I guess so. Yeah, I think from a, a naturalist pers- perspective, absolutely, I am. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I, I, I mean, obviously, it's it's the question that kind of bothers my mind most of all. To be honest, is what is out there? Are we alone? Is it's there life on other planets? Obviously, over the uh, Easter break, NASA were talking. We had a break on the show. Um, the NASA were talking about um, from the Cassini mission. They found uh, further evidence of all the ingredients that you would need, or most of the ingredients you would need for life, in the waters in the oceans of the Moon Enceladus, which is one of the moons of Saturn. Um, that's kind of life in our own solar system, the potential of life in our solar system. We've got the TRAPPIST-1 planets, the seven planets, at least seven planets orbiting TRAPPIST-1, also 39 light years away. In another direction, the 39 light years away, we've got this planet with its imaginative name. Um, We've got Proxima b. There's a planet there, which is, I think, about four light years away. Uh, It... Every time, the more we look up into space, the more we find planets, the more we find planets that seem habitable. It just seems so highly unlikely that we're alone in the universe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I can't can't believe that nowhere else in that enormous space that's all around us that there hasn't been some concoction of all the right elements that that formed us. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's just, yeah, it's it's mind-blowing, isn't it? And it's... Would you want to go to another planet if we, if you had the chance, like an, an, an exoplanet elsewhere outside of? If you could get, a, let's just put this in perspective, just before everyone gets excited, it was. Uh, it takes eight minutes for the light from our Earth, uh, from our Sun, to reach the Earth. That the speed of light, light takes eight minutes from the Sun to our Earth. From one of these planets yeah, it, that we're talking about here, it would take thirty-nine years for that light to reach us. Travelling at light speed. You're not going to go to these, one of these planets, but in this dream fantasy land of science fiction, would you want to go to one of the planets? I would, but that comes with a caveat, and that caveat is that I would like to see every other place on this planet first. <laughs> I think that's fair enough. Now, one man who... Uh, well, he's not one man. He's a group of... He's a, he is one man, but he's part of a group called the PT Scientists, is going to another planet celestial body well he's not he's sending two robots there i keep correcting myself today don't i um carsten becker he is part of pt scientists and they've just booked a space on one of elon musk's uh, rockets and i asked him why so our goal is to land a rover on the moon by mid next year 
and we want to go to uh, Apollo 17, and especially we want to go to the lunar rover vehicle that has been standing on the moon for more than 45 years, and we want to see what happened with it. The thing is, right, I want to do that, but I can't, so how can you do that? <laughs> Well, um, you have to try really hard, then you have to convince yourself that uh, this will eventually work, and uh, after just uh, a few years, uh, you will start to realize that it might be possible. So, well, it really just started by the end of 2008, which is not yesterday, as you may know, and, you know, we, we started without any knowledge in uh, about space uh, you know we are not uh, space scientists or any of the like so we sat together and uh, we were like hey you know um, we should participate in this competition uh, where you have to send a rover to the moon and uh, so we started thinking about it and this is how how we got started and uh, we've been working on it ever since okay but so what was it about apollo 17 that, that made you want to go there? Well, there are several reasons. Um, one of them is um, that's a nice place to land. Uh, there are There is many pictures of it available, so you know that um, there aren't any big boulders or rocks or uh, whatnot. Um, there's also quite a bit of um, geographically uh, geographical data available. But um, I think the most important part is that it's the last place where men set foot on um, another um, celestial body. And I think continuing the story from there is something that's... Um, that's pretty nice. It also was uh, the only mission where they actually took a scientist with them. And uh, so there has been some proper science being done. And uh, we want to figure out if any of those, um, you know, could be improved upon. Two rovers, they go to the moon. They're going to trundle along very nicely to the Apollo 17 landing site and disprove all the conspiracy theorists again. And <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, conspiracy theorists uh, are really immune to any facts, uh, so I'm not sure they are convinced. And in particular, our rover is participating, um, as you may have seen in, uh, in the Alien Government movie. So, um, you know, we are making... Uh, we are helping the conspiracy series to form a new one. You know that we are taking Ridley Scott to produce our uh, our moon show. <laughs> um, developing the rover is is the easy part because it is something um, that you can test. You can uh, you can take a rover, you can put it in a desert, you can drive around, you can see if it works, it doesn't work. But uh, the space testing a spacecraft is something that's um, significantly more difficult because um, the first test uh, in the proper environment will be on uh, in orbit you know it's uh, uh, it's very hard um, to do you, you can't uh, the the thrusters we are buying for example will not work um, in uh, in air and then you have the gravity problem and uh, you know they can't test fire them easily and so this is getting very complicated and um, so what we did to develop uh, electronics is essentially we we developed hardware for the rover that we are going to reuse in the spacecraft as well you know, because uh, this allows us to, to test uh, the, the hardware quite a lot, but um, uh, make sure that it also works in the spacecraft. And then we just have to have the proper um, test procedures and uh, software simulations and um, everything will work as planned. I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm, I have no doubt that it will. <laughs> you don't? Okay. No, no, I, no. At least one of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, hang on a second. You just, you just said that your rover is going to be in the Alien Covenant movie. Yeah, um, there's, been a, there's been a trailer where it has been seen for about three seconds. 
It will be a short uh, appearance, but um, we can say that we have been on another planet before we have been to another <laughs> celestial body. Yeah, so that's cool. That's really cool. It's one thing saying I want to send stuff to the moon. It's another thing working out how to do it. But it's it's quite another thing getting a rocket and taking it to the moon with your rover on it. So what? How are you doing that? Well, it's simple. You go to SpaceX.com and uh, you say, I want to buy a rocket, and then you transfer some money, and then off you go. <laughs> uh, the best way to design a spacecraft is to make one that can fit any rocket uh, with any orbit um, and uh, so that we can adapt it easily to, um, to new requirements. And the result is... Um, it's a spacecraft that we call ALINA, which is the Autonomous Landing and Navigation Module. And uh, yes, the letters are all in there somewhere. This is our spacecraft, and it can take 100 kilograms of payload to the moon. One of the payload is two of our rovers um, that we designed together with, with Audi, which are called the Audi Luna Quattro. <laughs> Amazing. Our mission works like this. So we, we bought a rocket, uh, which will take our spacecraft to what's called a GTO, so a Geostationary Transfer Orbit. Um, which is around Earth still. And from that, we will take it with our own propulsion to the moon and circleize it, and then we land and disembark the two rovers and are pretty happy. Okay, cool. That's, a, that's a so amazing. So when, when is this happening? <laughs> so um, the aim is to, to launch by about mid-next year. Yeah. So, But yeah, I thought you'd bought time on the rocket, you built space on the rocket, so is it not a specific launch? You just said, I'm doing it by this time, or what, how does that work? As you may know, rocket launches are hard and uh, occasionally there are um, things that go wrong and this can cause havoc to your schedule so there's uh, you know for example the latest blow up from spacex uh, has uh, caused a delay of about three months from the schedule so you know those things are not fixed in stone um, essentially you know something always happens and making a date is something that, uh, that is left to kind of like the last minute but we need to we need to provide a, um, a interval of about 14 days where the JU stationary satellite and our mission can launch at the same time so that, um, you know, it can be shifted for within a two-week span. There's some link with Vodafone. Yeah, so um, we are pretty happy to announce that we have a uh, new partner aside from, uh, from Audi. And this is a partner which is helping us in a very strategic way because the, the goal is that we want to build the first mobile network on the moon. <laughs> and uh, this is what you know. You know, you, you know you're you're laughing now, but when you're going there in 30 years for tourism uh, opportunities, you will be happy to use um, our network, and uh, we will charge uh, astronomical uh, roaming fees. So <laughs> you get rich. Yeah, amazing. Um, no, but I mean, uh, in, in, in fact, it is um, it is very helpful to us because the way the rovers are designed right now is that we are communicating to Earth directly. But the problem is that. The energy that is required to communicate to Earth directly uh, are about half of the total budget that we have for the rover driving. And so we have a, on the back of the rover, we have an antenna that needs to be pointed at Earth while you're driving in rough terrain. And, uh, you know, in theory, it should work. But I think in practice, it's more difficult than it looks like. And so with LTE, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the 4G standards, we can communicate between um, the rovers and uh, Alina, our spacecraft, and so we don't have to use as much energy for communication uh, while we're driving on the surface of the moon. And uh, so this is a nice benefit for our first mission. But we as a company, we are offering payload to the moon. So uh, if you want to fly something to the moon, you know, for just 750,000 euros a kilogram, you can send it with us. 
<laughs> and um, judging from your laughing, you don't have that amount of money. But, um, <laughs> no, I don't love there that. Are quite, there are quite a few um, universities and uh, other companies that are interested in doing that. What really is important about it is that what we see the future in is building a colony on the moon. So it's, uh, the European Space Agency calls it the moon village. And uh, we want to be um, an infrastructure provider for that. So be it uh, 3D printing services or uh, communication infrastructure, you know, we want to we want to bring that to the moon and um, help them get it done. Do you want to live on the moon? If I could get if I could get there without uh, strapping myself to an exploding body, um, I would be happy to. But I think I'm the guy that's wait for the space elevator to happen. Okay, where where will the rocket launch from? So the rocket will launch from um, Cape Canaveral. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Mm. So have you booked tickets? Oh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Problem is that I will probably be needed in the in our mission control by uh, uh, during the launch. So I may not be able to to see it live, which is really a shame. Yeah. Well, listen. What what we'll do is I'll go and I'll see it live. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for talking to me and. Yeah, we'll see you on the moon, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you'll hopefully uh, a bit before that. So if you're interested in watching what we are doing, you know, you can also go to missiontothemoon.com. Um, th- this is our page where we are talking about what we're doing and probably we'll be presenting our live feed uh, from what we're doing as well. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Yeah, Harriet and I are delighted to be joined by Grace Mullally and uh, you're doing a PhD at Bristol University. I am indeed, yes. Um I am trying to adapt the CRISPR genome engineering system for mitochondrial genetics. Okay. What <laughs> is CRISPR? What is CRISPR? <laughs> um, so CRISPR is ex- exciting. I spend most of my time feeling excited about it. Um, it's a genome engineering technique which, um, well, really, actually, we've harnessed it as a genome engineering technique um, but originally it's from bacteria and archaea um, okay. as an acquired immune response. Right. That is what it is. Okay. What, what can we do with it? That's kind of what yeah, I'm more interested in. what you really want. Yeah. Um, so really what it allows us to do is to uh, cut DNA uh, or localise proteins to specific sequences in DNA cheaper, quicker and easier than ever before. Okay. And why would I want to do that? Basically... Many reasons. The bread and butter, essentially, of how we understand DNA is by making small modifications and seeing what that does. You can kind of think of DNA as a string of letters that you can cut and paste together. And the more we cut and paste them together, the more we understand it. And so people or scientists have always tried to take techniques or develop techniques for changing DNA so that we can understand it more. And so this technique is just the newest tool in that toolbox, really. Okay. Now, we've been talking about that for a reason, not just because it's interesting and kind of right at the cutting edge of science, really, isn't it? This is a, this is, mm. this is a big thing. It is, it is really, really exciting. So the tool was only developed in 2013, and since then, in such a small number of years, we've got papers z- z- zooming out of labs yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, also a lot of interesting bioethical discussions coming out about it too. Okay. Oh, shall we have Very one? Exciting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. Well, let's do it in a minute because you, okay. you've got an exhibition coming up. Can you yeah. tell us about that? Please? Absolutely. So, um, along with uh, two other researchers and three artists who are all based in Bristol and all research and uh, do their art in Bristol, 
uh, we've uh, come together and had some number of conversations about um, CRISPR and also about other techniques which are used in synthetic biology. And we've developed an art exhibition uh, based out of these discussions. And that is happening this week. Oh, what? Very exciting. Here in Bristol? Literally here in the Bristol this week. Amazing. So what made you go to artists to help des- design something to showcase what you've been doing? Yeah, so um, basically... As there are loads of these papers coming out about CRISPR, they always either start or end with a bit of a call to arms, and they say, this tool has a possibility to change the world in which we live. But the people that live in this world need to make those decisions. And so they basically are encouraging uh, researchers to interact with members of the public and just, you know, members of society to make those decisions about how the technique's going to be used. And I thought, okay, well, how can we start that discussion in Bristol? And something that I've always found is you can get a very nice narrative with an art exhibition. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, the output of scientific research papers can seem quite dry and boring to the average person. But maybe an art exhibition is something that's going to engage with a couple of different people or, you know bring a new crowd along to my CRISPR conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what, what would I see if I go to mm-hmm. the exhibition? What am I going to see? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I've just literally come here putting the last <laughs> piece on the wall so I can now tell you what you will see. Okay, I couldn't have told you this morning. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so it's myself as well. I've kind of put the uh, exhibition together, but the three artists, um, Claudia Stocker, Imogen Coulter and Theo Wood, have all made pieces. And um, so we have, they've all made two pieces each, so about six or seven pieces in the space. And they, uh, first, the couple, I won't give too many spoilers, but mm. the first couple of pieces explore some research which uses, which uses CRISPR, which is happening in Bristol. And then the last pieces are kind of more of uh, conversation starters. They're um, di- some dilemmas or future, future thoughts on how CRISPR might be used in society. Um, so, yeah. yeah, come on down. On your, uh, you, there's a Facebook there this. is indeed yes and um how would people find that if they wanted to find it or how would they find the exhibition generally so the easiest way to find us online is literally just to google Synbio expo which is our name s-y-n-b-i-o-e-x-p-o Synbio expo and then we come up on a number of places a number of places including facebook and also uh, we are at space gallery which is six west street on old market um okay has it got anything to do with space, or is it just a space? It is not, other than it being a space, this has got nothing to do with space, <laughs> but I'm sure we're going to be crispering things in space very soon. So. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> oh, I'm, absolutely, I'm sure. You know, um, you know if, if people are looking into technologies to uh, be growing uh, plants or having life that is suitable to other climates, I'm sure some kind of genetic modification or genetic engineering of, of species that we have here for those conditions is absolutely going to be factoring into wow that future amazing and now i was what i was going to say was on your facebook group for this mm. or your facebook page well i don't know what the technology technical <laughs> word is but you know facebook thing yeah it, it says if you could change your dna would you would you yeah so you've asked the question you can answer it. oh i can answer it. <laughs> yeah i was hoping that by being the one who always answered the, asked the question i never had to answer it myself um i don't know yeah. Why, why not? Why wouldn't you want to do it? Because, firstly, I don't know what I'd change. Okay. And secondly, because I honestly don't think that techni- technology is ready to go into humans yet. And I, okay. you know, although, you know, you can email, 
you know, go on the internet and find a CRISPR kit and get it delivered to your house. It's just not so simple. You cannot just, you know, inject some CRISPR into your hand and, yeah. you know, get the effects you wanted. So okay. even if I did want, I don't know, legs that would make me run a marathon, because my legs won't make me run a marathon, yeah. I don't think I could change my DNA to make me do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. But, uh, it, so if there is a positive future for it, mm. for the human, or is there something you can see that CRISPR could go to where you would be like, yeah, do you know, I would do that. What, in humans? Yeah. Oh, so that's a, that's a difficult one because I think um, that's actually a question I'd, ne- I'd never thought about. So, well, I'm now thinking of nuclear DNA, but actually, of course, my own research is looking at modifying humans, but n- I wouldn't, well, not humans, modifying mitochondrial DNA, which mitochondria are in humans. Sorry. Um but it would never be in a living human, I guess, in that respect. Uh, I think, yeah, genetically modifying a human whilst they're already an alive human is, yeah. it's, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's actually, funnily, and I, the reason I'm faltering, I think, is because I've never really given it enough thought, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to make this exhibition, because, yeah. you know, to have some really interesting conversations and to challenge myself, you Absolutely. know, to challenge maybe, myself to have these questions. Maybe that's the kind of question that listeners can ponder as they walk around <laughs> the exhibition. Just, can you just remind us about where they can find the exhibition again? Yeah, absolutely. So we're on uh, 6 West Street in Old Market at the Space Gallery, and we're there all this week. So we open this evening, but then... Uh, from Tuesday till Saturday, Tuesday the 25th to Saturday the 29th, we're open every day, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. It'd be really interesting for anyone yeah. to come along and have a chat. Amazing. It's, it is a wonderful piece of science, and I'm really fascinated by it, so I'm going to go <laughs> down and see how you do it. I'm also interested in, as Harriet says, in this, this crossover between art, uh, between art and science and mm. the way that that's been done in this mm. exhibition. Anyway, let's have some music, <laughs> and then let's talk about <laughs> hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM, that's 93.2 FM. I'm Andrew Glester, and with me are Grace Mulally, who stayed with mm-hmm. us after uh, uh, telling us all about her exhibition coming up at Space, about the CRISPR technology, and Harriet Croom. Now, I promised everyone hobbits. <laughs> have I lied to them, Harriet? You have not. No, so uh, in the news today, even, has been an ancient human species nicknamed the Hobbit. Um, so Homo, Homo floresiensis is not a new find, but it is a controversial one. It was discovered in Indonesia just over a decade ago, and scientists are still quite hotly debating about where this find should be placed in the evolutionary timeline of hominins. So it was previously thought um, that it might have been a descendant of the larger Homo erectus, um, which gradually shrunk in response to scarce resources in new island habitats, or even a smaller version of us, Homo sapiens, possibly um, with with some kind of... um, change like down syndrome mm-hmm. um but this new research published in the last few days suggests that this tiny species um whose fully mature adults are actually no bigger than a child now might actually have been descended from from an ancestor we don't know yet that's new to science um and was the first ever hominin to venture out of africa mm. into asia so it's a really cool finding it kind of it, it just makes me think about a, a time way back when when there were just all sorts of kind of us mm. hairless apes mm. or wandering around on the planet i mean it, I, as i understand it when they found these um they found these bones and things in 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 a cave mm. And they thought it must be children, but then they found that their their teeth were fully 
sort of adult teeth. Mm. So that's that's kind of what led them down this this road. Do you know what it is? What's the update? What's happened that's made them think further? So what's happened is this research has used. Um, it's a bit more comprehensive in the sense that it uses um, bones from the skull, the jaw, teeth, leg and shoulders and compares this to a different number of other ancient hominins. And whereas before they thought that the kind of greatest commonalities were between it and Homo erectus or even Homo sapiens, then now they now they've found more shared characteristics with um, another, so lots of homos, Homo habilis, mm-hmm. um, which was thought to have um, split into into two different species around two million years ago. One stayed in Africa and became the first species to make sort of stone tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second left into Asia, and that's the species they think for, then changed gradually over time to, for, to form Homo floresiensis. Mm, wow. Uh, there's, there are all sorts of, as you say, it's a controversial topic because there are all sorts of theories about why they died out mm. and where they lived and where they went. Um, but there aren't any, it's not controversial in terms of the fact that they existed and were there. No, no, absolutely not. So are there any theories that are out there that are kind of about how they died out? Is it our fault, as usual? <laughs> it could be. So um, obviously as they, they went into Asia and they started to kind of take up these island habitats, they became increasingly more isolated. Um, and that on the one hand would have led them to they were kind of sheltered from external influences for a while and allowed them to kind of live for the period that they did but once they they started getting kind of encroached upon by other species namely homo Mm -hmm. sapiens us then then that clash could have could have led to their extinction in the end so that's one possible theory yeah okay Mm. Well, we'll watch this. Grace, you're going yeah. to... Oh, it's just interesting. I was just thinking about, you know, someone who's interested in DNA. Mm. I was just thinking of a couple of things, you know. Um, obviously, if you've got uh, small numbers of individuals going and living on an island together, obviously their gene pool will then get smaller. But then it's also interesting just thinking about, you know, this is so long ago that probably all the DNA in those individuals was is degraded when we find those bones and fragments of, of humans, but... It would just be so interesting to to be able, if we could ever, mm. look at that kind of information, that look at comparing their genomes comparatively and just yeah. looking at the very interconnectedness. Absolutely. As always, yeah. science cheering me up as well as <laughs> me down. Another person who cheers me up all the time is John Ford, who's joined us in the studio. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Very good, yeah. Not too bad. I, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned... Um, something that happened on this day in 1990. Oh. Do you know mm. what it was? N- no. You're into space. Um, it was the 66th um, US manned space mission. This was Discovery 10, but it launched something very important on this day in 1990. Do you know what it was? Um, I'm, I'm not going to guess. It was the Hubble I telescope. D- I was going to oh. guess that. Oh. <laughs> oh. What a fool. You just said, I'm not going to guess. I was going to guess that. <laughs> That's not very scientific. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's called a stab in the dark. <laughs> Hubble was launched. And what I didn't know when I looked at this was that um, for three years it couldn't send back any decent pictures because they got the they got something wrong, didn't they? And yeah. The, the images were blurred um, because uh, the uh, mirror w- should have been made flatter by by just one fifth the width of a human hair. Yeah. Um, oh they. Recorrected that in 1993, and then of course the rest is history. Yeah, but it's been made redundant now, hasn't it? Hubble? 
No, well, no. That's new, new the James Webb Space Telescope goes up next year. Hubble's still, uh, still going oh, up, right. still producing amazing science, amazing imagery. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. You, you were talking on the show when you first started about your, you know, your frustration of uh, whether there was anything out there. Are we alone? Uh, would Hubble and the new James Webb Telescope be able to see anything further into the? The distance. Yeah, I, well, J- James Webb is um, it, it, the the main thing that scientists are excited about with with James Webb is that, in terms of looking for life on other planets, is that it is going to be able to see uh, or map the atmospheres around planets, and if we can do that, then we can see. Uh, what those uh, those atmospheres are made up of, and it, it, if you were looking at Earth, for example, you would see nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide, and methane, and all these gases that we have in our atmosphere. Some of those are there because of the life on this planet, and that it, but by looking at the atmospheres of planets around, of atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars, we'll be able to see if there's the potential of life on those planets. There's chances, Trappist, whatever, isn't it? Trappist One, the Trappist planets one, there, yeah. yeah. And, Oh, it's the end of the show. Thanks for joining me. (laughs) 